0: Hello, bonjour, ni hao, estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Anyone can talk about and draft strategy, but execution is increasingly where the battle is won. Connecting these phases is very challenging and those who do it well will be at the top of their game. These people move in very tight circles and often keep a low profile. They'll have battle scars to show, skin in the game, and money in play. But learning from their practical wisdom is priceless. So it's my job to find the best people in the world and convince them to be interviewed for the benefit of all. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So what's the best way to grow? Is it by acquiring more customers or to retain the ones you already have by reducing churn? This is a big bane of contention within the marketing and growth communities. On the one side, you have Aaron Burr Bass Institute advocating about acquisition and the importance of that relative to the size of your brand. On the other hand, you have some people in the software and SaaS community who are adamant that retention and reducing churn is a tactical nuance that can dramatically increase your growth prospects. So today, we're talking to Anita Toth, who is one of the worldwide experts in this topic of churn reduction and increasing retention. How do you reduce churn? What are the tactical and strategic approaches you can take to do this immediately in your service business? Also, what are the top three or four ways that contribute to higher churn rates in all organizations? Look, there's not much more to say about this topic, but you should listen to this episode because this conversation is fascinating. We delve into lots of areas, including the customer onboarding process, churn, customer success versus sales how uh, expectations play into all of these metrics, which metrics to measure in the first place when it comes to churn. How do you define churn? I mean, what is that? Is it a trial customer that churns or is it a paying customer? Lots of these questions will be answered in this episode. So if you don't learn something from this episode, you haven't been listening. Ladies and gentlemen, Anita Toth. Well, welcome to the show, uh, Anita. Uh, How are you doing this morning?
1: Oh, I'm doing great, thanks. Excited about our talk.
0: Great, okay. Well. Uh, at the start of the show, we always share a beverage together, and a bit early for me, it's my morning, your your evening. So we decided upon tea. And can you just explain to me what we're drinking this morning?
1: Absolutely, it's called Cream Earl Grey, and um, I'm a little bit of a tea snob, actually. Um, I only drink two beverages: one is water, and the other is tea because tea has such a wide range of different types of teas you can have and uh, this is my favorite and actually this particular one because we are having it at night i have a regular caffeinated version i have in the day and then at night i have this decaf version that i just love
0: very nice and uh bergamot so citrus bergamia um again uh you've got the the bergamot flowers in there which is a a bit of a snobby version, if you don't mind me saying, but that's, I'm on the same page as you because I hate the ones that actually are so saturated with the oil that they taste like perfume. You're ingesting perfume and I'm like... You know, I like a bit of flavoring, but not too much. So um, I really like this one.
1: Yeah, 100% with you on that.
0: Okay, great. Uh, so today we're talking about churn. and This is your specialty, uh, churn or retention. Um, some people use the terms interchangeably, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, but just the first question is, you know, what is churn?
1: So simply put, it's when a paying customer stops being a paying customer. And I should qualify now that there are two types of churn. One is called voluntary churn. So that's where a customer decides they want to stop being a customer. And then there's involuntary churn, and that is usually related to some kind of payment failure. So it could be uh, their credit cards expired or something else happens and, and the payment doesn't go through. So there's two types of, of churn that uh, we typically talk about.
0: Well, very nice. Okay, and uh, often some people confuse the term churn uh, with something else. Uh, What what do people confuse this with?
1: Um, One of the things I I often see, which kind of is surprising, is when they will um, apply churn to to free or trial members. and, and then try, try to talk about those customers churning. It doesn't really fit the proper definition, which is there's got to be some sort of payment involved. So sometimes how they choose to uh, define that churn metric can be complicated if they've also put in um, subscribers who aren't paying for their services
0: or okay, their great. product. No, I love it, and um, you know that sometimes I see it also get confused with uh, very long uh, sales cycle or, or purchase frequencies. So, um, you know, maybe the company gets a customer, they pay for a period of time, and then you know, two years later, they buy again. Have they actually gone to a competitor and used them in the meantime, or have they really churned or not? Like, is there a bit of gray area with like the the period of the sales cycle here, and how you define whether the customer's actually left or not?
1: Yeah. Oh, great question. Because it's it's all about nuance. So it all depends truly on how the company wants to define churn for them. So for some companies, um, they will focus on revenue churn. So that is whether they're, the revenue has actually like left, if you will, versus the customer has left. So if a customer pauses their account, let's say, Three months or six months, like you said, and then re-engages. But during that paused account, they're not paying. A lot of companies do not necessarily uh, consider that churn. Um, So it can get like, wow, it can get really complex on even how companies want to to measure churn. I've seen there's like the super simple how many customers do you have at the beginning of the month? How many customers do you have at the end of the month? And what's the difference? Right to some like very complex mathematical equations way over my head. Uh, And then, like I said, you know, do they they count paused accounts in there? Do they not? Um, So whenever I'm working with my clients, I just ask them, how do you define churn? And then we just start uh, right there versus me coming in with some preconceived notion of how they should define churn for their business
0: i love it because you know reporting churn rates can get a bit political depending on you know your reporting systems and you know who who you may be working with um but we'll get to the measurement in just a second before we get there i want to ask you like who is ultimately responsible for churn and and customer attention is it the growth is it customer success is it sales Or, or is it everyone is there one person that normally um, gets sort of assigned to this like a retention manager, for example?
1: Again, it really depends on the size of the company. So when you're talking uh, startup um, and they let's say they don't have a customer success team, then that can even be like the CEO or the founder depending on on who that is. As the company grows, if they have a customer success function, uh, typically they will ha- uh, have that turn metric it it really depends i've I've seen even vP of sales have it if customer success rolls up into sales um it it can really be owned formally um, almost anywhere depending of i shouldn't say anywhere because it really is it's either like like i said founder ceo or customer success um, or if they roll up into sales but really who is responsible for churn is every employee in the company. And I would even push to say those who are customer facing and those who are not. Everyone uh, is responsible in some ways for whether uh, customers churn or they stay.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I was talking, I was reading some Reforge articles, uh, you know, Brian Balfour in, in the US um, and his, you know, growth uh, Reforge program. Um, and they were saying like sometimes a churn can be a, a product of of the sales process. So if your um, sales process, uh, process is target-based in terms of just like getting people in the door regardless of their LTV or lifetime value to the company, um, then sometimes it can incentivize them to get lower value customers who will churn just because because there's less commitment there and they're not really as qualified as other ones. So then your churn metric would be higher um, than what otherwise would be the case. But then if you reorientate the sales team around only acquiring these higher value customers, then the churn rate will be lower because you've pre-qualified those. But obviously there'll be less like um, N or volume of sales, um, but the the revenue you could get from them could be higher. So it's kind of like this, this uh, balance that you have to achieve. What do you think about how sales... Uh, determines churn.
1: Woo. Okay, so i seen this meme. Now I should say that um, I work primarily with with customer success teams, and if you don't know what customer success is, customer success is um, the proactive part of having. Uh, they're different than account managers, but they work with the customer to help them succeed in in attaining the outcomes that they're seeking. Whereas customer support is reactive. So I just wanted to make that clear because sometimes people really confuse it. So um, usually there's a handoff between sales to customer success. And the meme I saw recently, uh, remember when that ship, the Ever Given, was stuck in the Suez Canal and it was like turned sideways? It was this massive ship. And someone had, you know, taken a screenshot of this big, massive ship. And then remember, there was like one guy with his little excavator who was busy working. And somebody had taken that picture of the excavator, excavator right beside the ship. And on the ship, they wrote bad fit customer. And then the little guy (laughs) with his excavator was, you know, customer success. So (laughs) really a good portion of churn can be reduced just by sales selling to better fitting customers because customer success really tries their best once those customers are handed over. But if they're not a good fit, it doesn't matter what they do. The customer won't be happy. The customer success manager will, you know, kind of burn out trying to make this customer fit. And then eventually what, what ends up happening, kind of like you know, in any relationship that's not working well, well, one party walks out, and that, that's usually the customer who will just leave because it, it just was never going to work for them right from the start.
0: And that's what I love about the analogy about the, you know, it's like a romantic relationship, which you're mentioning in another video that I saw um, with Karim. And uh, I think that's very true. Like, you know, from the onset there, if there's a mismatch or there's some problems in the relationship, it never kind of gets better without a lot of work. So sometimes you're better off finding a better match to start with to, to prevent troubles down the road. What do you think?
1: I absolutely agree. And if you think about it, like humans, we we rationalize our decisions, but really our decisions are made by, by our emotions. So if, you know, you have this sort of lead gen dating marketing sales process where it can be exciting because of the promises that are going to be made, just like it is in dating. Oh, wow, we have this in common and this sounds good and you've done this and I like this and and all of that, and so what ends up happening is, especially if you have a, a big problem that you'd like solved, if someone comes along and says, "Like, yeah, we can fix this problem for you," you you get a sense of hope. So then, you, then you have you become the customer, which is like the the wedding. You get married, sign on the dotted line, hand over your money, and then there's the honeymoon period, which can be very short or very long, depending on you know, again, uh, how those expectations met reality. And if those expectations that you have about how this, this product or service will uh, help you solve your problem, then very, very quickly, um, you'll be like, hey, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. And you're out the door. But if there's a smaller gap between expectations and reality, and you're kind of like, well you know, don't like this. Well, no, I thought this would be easier. But then you kind of get in that tolerating, you know, where you just sort of put up with it, see what happens, stick around for a little bit. Um, that's kind of that, you know, you, you hope that it will some some point, you know, fingers crossed, just like in a, in a marriage that's maybe not going so well. You're hoping that, well, maybe this is just a little bump in the road. And so you stick around, but then when things don't change, it's if you have an annual um, subscription, let's say, or a contract that's a year, then as it comes up to that, you start thinking like, okay, this is what I was promised. This is what reality is. I'm, I, this isn't really working for me. And again, then you rationalize all the ways that it isn't working and you decide, you know what, just like a divorce in a in, uh, marriage that, that's not working, You you divorce the company, walk away, you churn, and you're like, you know what this this just wasn't working for me and and they're gone out the door. But where those uh, expectations are are set is in those sales conversations and the marketing that goes before.
0: I love that because um, I've worked with a lot of firms. It was some really good sales teams, by the way. And uh, there was this one firm in particular, which I won't mention, but they're in the digital agency space and their sales team was like really good. They were like a chip off the old block of the Wolf of Wall Street crew, um, complete with all their um, Hmm. habits uh that are depicted in the movie anyway they're very good at selling uh like really well and that would promise like everything are oh, that you know take them from current state to desired state and that paint this really rosy picture of like if you come with us you know your business is going to change it's going to change overnight blah, blah blah blah. and what it would do is it's had really high expectations so then when it came through to the account management team uh, which i was part of um then you'd have to deal off the bat with these very high expectations and um that caused an issue downstream. So while it was good, um, I can kind of empathize with the the need for sales to do this because I worked in sales as well. And if you don't promise that, you end up losing the sale to someone else who will, who maybe have a more inferior product. So you're like, caught between this sort of rock and a hard place like well do i do i not under promise and then not get the sale and it goes to our competitor or do i just promise it and then we'll just try and do our best to to string them along because we're not as bad as some of the other people out there like what what would you say to that
1: oh wow it it's it's a conundrum and i wish i could say there was an easy solution to it because it's it's really tough like sales is trying to do their job they're not you know purposely going out trying to find the ever given bad fit customer you know that big ship and passing it over to, to customer success that's not their goal but I think part of the problem is around just compensation for sales teams and company culture and that really is incumbent then on on senior management or the c-suite to change the culture like I haven't. I, I had this happen to me oh, probably about a year or so ago. First time it ever happened, and I was shocked. So I wanted to purchase this one product. It was a piece of software. I can't even remember what it is now, or even the company name. But um, I went to try to purchase, and there was a bit of an application process, which I thought was weird. Before they they you know took my money, and so I got this email back from them, and they said, "Well." based on what you wrote in in the application um you're not a good fitting customer for us so we're not going to take you on and i was i was like really taken aback like part of me at first was ticked off like why wouldn't you want to take me in my money and then i went
0: are they are they playing hard to get or like projecting no. scarcity or something or
1: no, it is genuine. And I'm, oh, I'm kicking myself for, for not, you know, writing this down. This was, it was, had to be way longer than a year ago because maybe three or four now, if I really, really think about it. Um, anyway, that I had read, I had read somewhere afterward that this is what they do. That they, the company culture is so focused on, high retention that they will they will push customers or potential customers away and just say, no, we're not going to take you on. And um, I'm going to have to go and look up who they are, but this, this is what they are known to do. And it is not false scarcity. It's not a trick. This is how they decided to run the business from the start. And that's just, this is how they do it. So this whole concept of a frictionless sale, um, is just right out the window with them. They, nope, you've got to jump through hoops. If you want to be our customer, then you've got to jump through hoops to show us (laughs) that you're a good fit for us. And yeah, I I, talk about flipping the whole, you know, the whole sales process on its head.
0: I I love what you're saying there, because uh, I read this with a good book uh, recently by uh, Adam Ferrier, who's a, um, behavioral psychologist. Um, again, there's some dubious people in that field, but he's not one of them. And um, it was about you know hearing the customer instead of listening to the customer. And there's a big difference uh, because sometimes what the customer says is it's not really what's going on. Anyway, he was like, there's this whole um, mantra of like frictionless, uh, you know, sales processes and frictionless buying. And sometimes putting friction into the process creates commitment and consistency principle, right? So then they get more attached to the product. So then they'll churn less. And that's one thing I want to talk to you in terms of tactics in a minute is that like, there's a fallacy that, hey, frictionless buying processes is, is all the rage, you know, you have to make it as easy as you can to onboard. And I'm like, sometimes the opposite is true. Um, the more invested they are at the sunk costs of their own time and energy, like like you did, uh, the more they'll stick around, right? Um, and again, coming back to what you said about that, that firm, it's like, there's two ways of looking at sales. It's like top line, you know, just aggregate figures like number of people coming on board and then how much average you know, ARP you can get off them or whatever. Um, and then there's the LTV uh, equation, which is like looking at actual value over time of those customers. And it, you can either have two views. You look at those volume metrics or you look at the underlying reverend uh, long-time rev generation. There's two very different approaches uh, to everything else, including, I would say, the churn and retention, how you view that.
1: Yeah, it's... Um fascinating, even for my own business, I had to really question, I I had a Facebook ad agency before. Um, This is how old, this is how long ago I had it. Uh, Video ads were just brand new when um, I had probably come in about, you know, eight, eight or nine months before that. So this was years ago. And the whole concept was around, just get people in, just get like their email address. You don't even need their, their first name, you know, just frictionless, quick, easy, get them in. Um, but now mind you, these were also low cost products. They $49 a month, fifty, you know, $59 a month, 29. Uh, we're not talking, you know, big B2B sales. Um, and it took me a long time to come out of that and realize that friction in the process is a good thing it it creates desirability um, It and so even for my own process I just did this not long ago there's there's an application that people have to go through and they must it's based on that experience I had all those years ago with that company I can't remember the name of but it it it's really hard for companies to do this is not an easy you know twist of of your mind and then you know suddenly you're you're you've made this switch over it's it's really complicated because this one decision to move from frictionless to frictioned even if it's a small a small change what are the consequences down the road for the business? What are the consequences, you know, down the road for the customer? Um, you really have to look at that. And it's, we're talking change management here. The The culture has to change how you view the customer, how you view the customer relationship, how you serve the customer. Like all of those things need to change when you start making that movement from Any leads, we don't care, we'll just take as much as we can so we can hit quota or we can look good for our investors versus, no, we are going to be more particular and we want better fitting customers. But that means our volume of leads, our volume will go down, even though long term our revenues will go up. And that's a risky play um, because there's a lot of pressure, particularly if a company is funded from investors to you know really make those those revenue numbers as high as possible and sometimes that long-term play means that there is a dip in the revenues which can be kind of kind of scary uh to report as you make that switch over and you know cheers to companies that can do that because it's that's a real challenge.
0: Yeah, I love it. And especially once your reporting systems are all set up and you've got this hierarchical process and reporting systems, like from one manager, line manager to the next. It's like, who wants to then go into the next meeting and go, oh, actually, you know, our figures are, you know, one-tenth of what they used to be. Like, they're gonna, you know, what's happening instantly? Um, on this though, I, I think you're sort of leading into the next thing I want to ask you, which is about some of the, I, I know you get asked this all the time. What are the main causes of churn? We, we just talked about perhaps expectation gap happening in the sales process or targeting lower value customers or lower commitment customers but there's some other things so if you want to look at macro like do you have a top 3 or 4 sort of leading causes that you see all the time in your work
1: Yeah absolutely um there's one that is like the the heaviest lifter of all I'd say it's like 80% um we when we were talking I mentioned it earlier and that's expectations not meeting with reality by far that's that's the biggest cause right there and uh, again, the marketing sales process, that early part of the customer journey is where those are set. And so when you become a customer and suddenly those expectations aren't meeting with reality, especially if that gap is really big, then you'll churn quickly is if the gap between expectations and reality is smaller, might take a little little longer to churn. So that's sort of like the number one. And, and I'm talking voluntary churn. There is the involuntary side as well, which I do want to mention. A lot of people don't talk about it, but it's focusing on why credit card payments are not going through. Um, or there's, you know, companies have done this and it's, it's such a, a quick fix. And that is to just go through and right before a credit card's going to expire. Send a little message to the to the customer asking them to update their their file. Um, sorry, their credit card information so that they can you know have continued service. They don't actually involuntarily churn. So I would say that those are probably like the two biggest. So expectations not meeting with reality, and then the involuntary churn side of where. Sometimes the, the two match up where it's like, okay, I'm not going to update my credit card information because I really don't want to be a customer anymore and I'm just going to let this lapse. So you do have overlap between those two, two different um, sort of types of churn as well. And so there's got to be effort on both, both parts with the voluntary churn and with the involuntary and bring those efforts together.
0: So I have a theory about uh, involuntary churn and the reason some companies don't do this, and this has happened to me twice, once for our biggest telco, which I heard through somebody else, um, which is a multi-billion dollar company, and, and again, through a smaller SaaS company, FinTech, uh, who I was advising. And that is that you can reactivate um, what we call kind of ghost customers or these customers that are just paying automatically, but don't interact with a product and you're just earning money off them and their usage is really low or, or zero. And sometimes when you communicate with them, it actually lets them the fact that actually they're still paying for this service that they're not using and they go, oh crap. And then they go, oh, I'll well, shut it off then. So a lot of the time, some of that is intentional. I'll just add, uh, do you see that or, or not?
1: Uh, I, I'm kind of smiling. I, I do see it. Uh, I know that a lot of companies don't want to admit that they they want to leave these. I think it, again, comes kind of down to, to what your culture is. Sorry,
0: it's called zombie customers. What was that? Oh, I think it's, I said ghost customers. They're called zombie customers who are just like zombing. They're sort of just in this trance like state paying and they're not doing anything. They're kind of like mind is switched off.
1: Yeah. Um, so those, those zombie customers, I've been a zombie customer. <laughs> it's happened to me before. I think when your tech stack becomes so big, it's, it's inevitably going to happen. Um, but you know what, at least for me and my values, um, and the clients I work with, we would rather take the, the financial hit and say, you know what, we're going to reach out to these customers. We're going to let them know this case. Uh, this exists. Um, some of them might leave and that's okay. But what you have done is, is at least left the relationship on a good note. It's kind of, if you go back to thinking again, that if your customer, uh, relationship is, is like that, that romantic relationship, you can leave a marriage by trashing the place, throwing stuff out on the front lawn and, you know, just have like a really tumultuous, um, ending to the relationship. Or you can be adult about it and say, okay, this didn't work out. Let's see how we can still support each other and keep this uh, relationship in good standing. So it still comes down to company culture and which do you, which do you want? For me and my clients, I always advise, reach, reach out to them and see and leave that relationship on a good note because you don't know a year or two down the road, they might decide to come back and it's because you you left the relationship on on a good note with that good gesture of reaching out and saying, "Hey, by the way, were you aware that you're paying for this and you're you're not using it?" I think most people appreciate being alerted to that, even if they decide to cancel.
0: So uh, on to the next thing. Um, if you had to split, you know, your work as a as a, a churn reduction person or a retention strategy, if you want to use the word, um, up into a, a generalized sort of approach. Um, where do you start or is there sort of like pillars or different focus points that you start with and then you end up here and and that process ends up reducing churn? Like, can you just walk us through the macro way you might go about your job?
1: Yeah. So there are different ways to approach churn. And again, I'm I'm glad we're talking about the two sides of it, the voluntary and the involuntary. So I partner with um, another company and, they have a piece of software that uh, helps retain those customers. And so we, we install that. That's the first thing we do to, uh, you know, ca- capture those customers that are at risk of involuntarily churning. But on the other side, what, how I approach churn is with uh, visibility. And that's it. That is like, we have so many metrics that we look at in business and One of the challenges with it is like, okay, so which metrics do we choose? Okay. This company looks at, looks at these. Okay. That's fantastic. They're trending up, they're trending down. Why? Well, we think this, we think that, um, what I do is I come in and I say, Hey, let's actually talk to your customers and find out from them.
0: What a novel concept. Why
1: is it that they're engaging in this behavior? Why is it that they're not engaging in this behavior that you would love them to engage in? What's the difference between your happiest customers and your most unhappy? Um, And start talking to them. And when I mean talking, it's not support calls, it's not the customer success manager having, you know, one of their calls and, and they're chatting. I mean, formally surveys, focus groups, and and sort of the gold standard are customer interviews, where you have questions that you ask every single uh, you know customer in that particular group, the same questions. So then you can compare the answers. Your customers will tell you why, and the more that you can layer this customer feedback into uh, your your you know, your voice of customer or understanding your metrics, then you reduce the risk of making a wrong decision based on assumptions or, you know, presuppositions, whatever it is that you're guessing. Your customers will tell you why. We don't like this. We nobody told us about that. Oh, well, when we started this was our goal, but our goal now changed and this is where we're headed. Talk to your customers and I think companies are really afraid to do this because sometimes they might hear something that they, yeah, it's kind of like, (laughs) you know, when you're overweight and you know you're overweight, but you look in the mirror and you go, oh, yeah, I'm a couple of pounds, but it's not that bad. Um, When you start talking with customers, you sometimes discover just how bad it can be. And once you've heard it, it's hard to ignore it which means then you have to take action. And so that's what I do to reduce churn is literally hearing the voice of the customer and letting, um, again, senior management, the C-suite, know this is what your customers are really saying. They're not anecdotes. It's not just some social media comment. We spoke with uh, you know 30 or 40 of them, and this is what they're consistently saying.
0: I really like what you're saying there. Uh, so basically, to sum up, market research, right? <laughs> Find out. Um, I was talking to Everett. Uh, he's, a, he's a marketer in, in Melbourne. And uh, he did this for a law firm, so uh, sort of mid-tier law firms, um, uh, B2C uh, mostly. Um, and he found out just by mystery shopping that a lot of the law firms were in denial about their first sales call with the customer so customer inquiries and how that was handled and it was handled badly by people who are untrained in sales so you know just get the admin person to answer the call and those disjointed um, you know process there really bad quality and he found out that just by improving that making basic improvements to that they were 30% more likely to choose that firm over the other two just because the person answered the bloody phone call and had a, a decent conversation whereas the other two you know wouldn't answer it or they'd have to get back someone to call them back or very very simple things like this that um massively increase the acquisition rate um so i know we're not talking about churn here but that's like just one example of the the gold that you can get from market research and someone referred to it as like um uh, it's like the cheat code to a game, market research, cheat code to marketing. And I really like that way of thinking about it. Um, but um, you did tell me a story about um, how this manifests itself. And you said two things. Um, you gave me this example of the waste management undercover boss episode. And you also talked about having happier employees. Can you expand a bit on how those two things can can decrease churn as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's a that's not an obvious one. That when you think about reducing customer churn, the first place you don't think to look is is reducing employee churn. You know, make your employees happier, they stay longer. Uh, so there's a huge um, home improvement store in the the U.S. and Canada. It's called Lowe's and they recently uh, did this where they decided to do a small group of stores where they were going to increase employee engagement and they did this through training they did it through first of all a survey to sort of find out what employees wanted they implemented training Uh, there was money allocated you know across the company And what they found, no surprise, is the stores where the employees were the most engaged and essentially felt, you know, happier, the customers, (laughs) they spent more, they stayed longer. And that was, they, at a time in the company where their profits were actually declining and their revenues were declining. And yet these particular stores actually had increases in revenue. So that was enough for this, this big company to decide that they were going to do something about retaining their employees longer as a way to keep their customers staying longer as well.
0: I love that. Um, You know, just a simple um, thing. Uh, coffee culture is really huge in Australia. I know in Canada, like you've got Tim Hortons and it, but you also have other coffee places, like more specialty coffee places. Um, so we have this Italian coffee culture that came in after the war. A lot of Italian ing- immigrants came to to Melbourne and, um, and other uh, cities, but mostly Melbourne. And uh, in there, there's a very Italian uh, espresso coffee culture. So your little local cafes everywhere. And people are very serious about coffee down there. It's, it's hard to find a bad coffee. One of the things they don't realize is what the Italians did really well is that... Um, you'd become part of the family when they welcome you into into their cafe or restaurant. And one of the biggest ways to retain and, and get more frequency of, of purchase from customers um, who tend to have multiple coffee places that they visit, by the way, um, is that, you know, if they remember your name and they kind of have this like, not false relationship, but this this quasi kind of relationship. Oh, I know you, you have the the long black with, you know, two sugars or whatever. Um, just that familiarity and that personality hooks the customer in. And again, if your staff are getting paid minimum wage and then you know you're hiring some people who don't really care about their job, you're not gonna get that enthusiasm, you're not gonna get that connection. And um, so when I'm advising some some cafes back in the day, I was like, you know, these little tactical things make a huge difference to your sales and your retention and repeat purchase. But, you know, why do, why do you think if firms don't invest in that? Is it because, you know, they're trying to reduce operational expenses? Is it like a financy thing? They want to, you know, cut some fat from, from some of these things and they overlook the opportunity cost? What, what do you think that is?
1: Um, first of all, I love that story. I've, I've got to say, um, I think we all just want to be valued Um, one of the challenges and and I really want to speak to this is because there's such a heavy heavy focus on metrics and even you know let's let's cut this let's cut that I have an example that uh, I saw this seven or eight years ago. And it was shocking to me. So it's a huge waste management company in the U S and there was a show called Undercover Boss and it was their actually their very first episode. I just dragged this up this example because it was so shocking to me. So the CEO goes undercover and he's like a garbage man for the day and, and different parts of the um, organization and he's doing this right along with this female uh, waste disposal driver so she has a garbage truck that's what she does and they have their roots. and she's talking about how she, as a female employee she doesn't feel valued by the company and he's like oh well well why is that and she's like well and they go to the side of the truck and she's like oh this is my pea can and he's like what is a pea can and then she goes this is where I have to go to the washroom. So literally a can, because she said, if we break off the route to use a public washroom, then, then she gets penalized for it. And so she has to resort to using this can at the side of the road. And the CEO, he just got they, you know, they, you know, talked to him afterwards and he said, I feel horrible because I was so focused on metrics and efficiencies and cost cutting that I never realized that these are people that are being affected by these decisions that I make just based on all these numbers. And so for anyone who is a decision maker at at that level, yes, the numbers make sense, but at the end, those numbers affect people it's affecting your employees, it's affecting customers. And this is why it's so necessary to get that that voice of the customer and I'll say voice of the employee up to that level. Like he had no idea because he was so removed from the experience of those on the ground drivers that why would he think that if we make this route more efficient, that that might be an outcome that that they didn't consider. So I really, you know, it's my it's my mission to get companies to talk to their customers and and, and spend as much time talking to their customers as they do, you know, looking at metrics about their customers. And that is a really huge ask.
0: I love it. I, I just think um, it reminds me of, um, okay, Jeff Bezos. you know, like him or hate him. There's a story. I don't know how much truth there is to it, but um, he still ch- checks his email account um, or his assistant does and filters it uh, for customer anecdotes because he's like, if I have one complaint from one customer, generally that's representative sometimes of like a huge problem that's not being measured anywhere else in the organization. You can have all these digital analytics tools and like reporting systems and everything, but like it's like one quip from a customer it is worth investigating. And I think the the same is true for, for a lot of good managers. They'll, they'll always come down to the factory floor. Sometimes they'll work in a menial job at the front line of, of the organization, you know, for one week a year, for example, there's a lot of companies who do that. And just that um, disconnection is broken from what you just mentioned. And, you know, again, that TV show is just one example of, of this exact thing, but uh, yeah, I I just love those customer anecdotes, And like you mentioned before, the one-on-one interviews, I do those and I record them and I just play them back to people. And I'm like, I don't say anything. I'm just like, this is what customers are saying and, and force people to listen to it. And then that just, challenges their notion in a very non-political way it's like it's not me it's, it's it's them so um but i'm really interested in this because um i want to get into some of these churn reduction tactics so we talked about Yuki's your approach with using research to identify maybe where the where the problem is um, but then how do we reverse engineer that in a way to to fix some of these problems and you know all the trade-offs that go along with that example um, there's this um, video personalization platform called Bonjoro, who basically is just embedding videos into email, uh, into your sort of customer email process and sales process. Um, but they use that for onboarding. They use it for the sales process, to, you know, for the, the outreach in the in the first place. And they kind of have these personalized emails from a sales team member um, that has an embedded video that is actually talking directly to that customer. So it's not just a, a faceless text to email, like, hey, welcome to our platform or whatever it's like the actual SDR or, or BDM having a conversational or custom access person uh, in a video. Um, and they found that that can really reduce, uh, uh, sorry, really increase retention, reduce churn. So again, tactical example. Have you sort of seen any other things or words of wisdom? Absolutely.
1: There? Absolutely. And I think it still comes down to that that customer relationship journey or emotional journey. We we want to be valued. We want to be heard. Like depending on the size of your company, one of the the challenges that uh, really can 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 cause what's you know take taking them from very hopeful to oh God, this was a mistake is that handoff between sales and whether it's um you know an implementation team or an onboarding team right there it's it's making sure that it, that information that sales collected uh through the sales process gets tra- transferred over so that now that that you know post sale team isn't asking the questions that were already asked, they can confirm. But it's not like they're the customer is going through the sales process all over again. And look at look at what that handoff looks like. Even even for customer support, I don't know about you, but I know several times with bigger companies. Oh, that's not my department, so I'll transfer you to so and so. Then you get transferred over, then they'll ask you what your name is, what your account number is. Then they'll be like, oh, well, can't quite help you out, so I'll transfer you to someone else. Well, wait a minute, why am I having to tell you my name, my phone number, my account number every single time I speak with somebody? That doesn't make me feel valued in any way. So if the best way to do this is try to look literally through the customer's shoes. Uh, I just had, um, there was one group that I was trying to to sign up for and they said, and this was a nonprofit, and they sent me the link and I went through and I'm a pretty techie person, right? I'm in there and I'm bashing my way through this. To fill out this form took me 25 minutes because I had to get like an encrypted signature and I was like, oh, how do I do this and put it in? And so at the end, I said to them, once I finally got through and everything worked out and we were on our first call, I said, how many people actually submit this digitally versus printing it off, signing it and taking a picture and sending it to you? And she goes, I think you're one of the only ones that we've had had do that. And I said, let me tell you why. And it was their IT team that set it up. The IT team obviously had never gone through the process themselves to see what would it be like if I was a customer. So they they, they they took that information once I actually, you know, shared my screen with them. And I said, this is how complicated this is. And for a nonprofit that's helping, you know, trying to help people that are having a particular challenge, this could be enough to have them walk away. And meanwhile, they're just trying to sign up. So it's looking for, for things like that in the company. And if you're wondering, you know, we all do this. We become so comfortable in what we're doing. We forget, what would it be like if if I had to go through this for the first time? Put friction, this is I'm gonna, you know, make this bold statement. Put the friction at the beginning of the process, get better fitting customers, and then remove as much friction as possible once they become a customer. They don't need to jump through hoops anymore. You've got them. Make it as easy as possible. So, I would say that's one of the tactical things, and that the biggest area is there between sales and becoming a customer, and that onboarding process. Are there extra steps that can be removed? Do they need somebody that could, um, you know, walk them through this? Or if, or if that's not your company, can you record videos instead of just having a text based? There's all sorts of different ways, but. Always try to look through that lens of if I had to go through this, would I find this easier? Would I get frustrated?
0: No, I love it. Okay, and um, uh, I really want to ask you because we're talking about some some things that we can measure here, right? Um, And we talked about you know what is churn it's it's a paying customer who comes a non-paying customer but if we talk about metrics here what are your sort of go-to metrics and and how are we supposed to calculate these properly you know there's always this sort of volumetric side of things that makes things look rosier then there's the the real nitty-gritty kind of quality metrics that maybe um you know a good person such as yourself would be looking at more so than the other ones um nps csat
1: yeah ooh. ooh. um no <laughs> <laughs> And that could be a whole other conversation. MBS, CSAT, customer effort. That, that is a whole other discussion. Maybe you can judge from the sound of my voice. Not a huge fan.
0: Neither um,
1: I. Actually, so churn, uh, NRR, Net Retention Revenue, and then the other is customer lifetime value because you also want to see if there's expansion in those accounts or with those customers that are retained. It's one thing to retain them. It's a whole other thing, again, to, to make them feel valued, to find out what goals they're really trying to accomplish and seeing if then there's upsells or cross-sells that, that can help them make that happen. So you also want to see that customer lifetime value going up. So those are those are my top three.
0: I love it. Okay. And um, like you've been, you mentioned you've been in this field for, for quite a, a period of time. You, you still look quite young, but um, you said you were around when Facebook video was out. So that was like probably what, 2012, 13, um, I'm guessing, or somewhere around there. What are the biggest changes you've seen in in your role uh, around shown, maybe previously to, to the current period, which is 2021?
1: Um, the rise of something called voice of the customer. I would say that's probably the biggest thing of all and it it fits right in very well with what I do and there the voice of the customer if, if you haven't heard of that is there's informal informal voice of the customer so informal voice of the customer these are these are things like social media comments your support calls reviews that customers leave um they're they're up to the customer to decide the the topic, and it's it's whatever they they want to say, versus formal customer feedback in a voice of customer program are things like surveys, focus groups, and interviews where you make the decision as to what topics. You're going to focus on what questions you're going to ask. And in the case of focus groups and interviews, it's actually how deep you want to, to go um, in those conversations. Because those are, those are the only two that are, are really genuinely conversations that you are having where you can ask for more context around an answer that a customer gives. Whereas with everything else, Uh, surveys are one way whatever the customer writes again there's still a lot of assumptions made around what's the context of this particular answer they gave so it's voice of the customer programs i'm thrilled that companies are doing this Um, there's a lot of um, hard data that's associated with it too but On my side of things and my focus is that qualitative or unstructured data, the stuff that's messier and harder to deal with. It's the marriage, if you will, (laughs) where you you want to know why and, and you want to sort of keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on with them
0: yeah no i love it i mean um like we we're saying like i think sometimes people just go oh retention why that customer um leave okay let's just send a survey monkey like um email to everybody and you know run them through this like thing and you're like you don't think about do those people have time to do that? Like, Do they want to do that? And then you're getting a biased sample and you're like, well, you need to really complement qual and quant. And I think a lot of people sometimes, especially in the SaaS, uh, they go, oh, what's a scalable system? We've got thousands of customers. We can't possibly like talk to all of them. Like, no, but you can talk to a sample. Um, you can have a conversation. You can call them up on the phone. You can Zoom them. Everyone's got Zoom now. Like, you know, use those things to your advantage. Transcribe the notes. Like, <laughs> like after this, I can transcribe this in an automatic program, at least get halfway there and reduce that sort of um, that time cost for you. And then you've got this really rich uh, set of like in the customer's words, things that I then use for copywriting that I then use. ah, Hey, here's the um, product team guys. This is what our customers are saying. Like, and then I can quantify the qualitative data to like provide validity to that. That's representative of a, of a large problem. Um, And yeah, it's just, you can only have to do 10, 12 interviews sometimes out of, out of a sample. And that's, Pretty accurate from from what I can see. Um, So no, I'm definitely on the same page as you. Um, What and this comes back to perhaps some common myths, and I really want to bust some myths in your field. So is there certain things that a lot of people believe to be true that you know to be wrong?
1: I love this question, (laughs) and I think the biggest and and we're starting to see a shift, and that is that um, the almost only growth lever is via acquisition. Uh, Again, like even look back at my Facebook ad agency. In those days, Facebook was like the wild west and us marketers, we were like all in there, just, you know, whatever. We didn't, we didn't care. I mean, the cost to acquire a lead was so low. Um, But those days are done and customer acquisition costs just continue to rise. There's not as much, uh, like we're so busy not only busy as a society but we know just with the number of apps and and different things we can look at during the day it's capturing the customer's attention is becoming much more challenging where the real profit is to be made and in my opinion no surprise i'm on the post sales side of things is in retention like we know that customers who are loyal, they, they spend so much more and you don't have to work to acquire them. You already have. So it's so much more profitable to sell to your existing customer base and really expand, um, the opportunities you have with them. And then happy customers go off and they refer Other customers to your business. You have positive word-of-mouth marketing, which is massive. We know it works. Look at look at I don't know. Have you I buy things on Amazon? And if I've never purchased this product before, I scan through. Okay, what are the, you know, people who gave it five stars, what are they saying? What did the three star people say? What did the one star people say? I don't know who these people are, but I absolutely put some level of trust and credibility into the responses they give. So in in making my decision, whether to buy or not, and it's the same here, You've, you've got to realize that the more loyal your customers are, the longer they stay, the more they spend, they refer other people. And then the social side of it with that positive word of mouth marketing, like all your marketing is not gonna go as far as if you can get those customer reviews that are on the whole very positive. That will do way more heavy lifting than any you know marketing campaign will do and you don't have to pay for it like i think that that's the biggest myth is that it's still acquisition is the best way to go and sure you got to get those customers in but i really think going forward because like salesforce they grew so quickly mostly on customer retention it is their high customer retention that helped them grow as fast as they did. And if they can do it, it makes you wonder then why can't other companies do this as well? We make a customer feel valued, solve their problems for them, listen to them, genuinely listen make the changes that would help support them reaching their goals. They'll stay and they'll pay and they'll pay happily and they'll tell others about it. So to me, that's the, that's the one thing I'm, I'm really trying to get companies to see is that there's two growth levers and the, uh, the acquisition one is getting smaller in terms of its impact on profits Whereas the the retention lever is really where you can expand those uh, revenues and profits much more quickly.
0: Oh, very nice. Um, and I, I think you know just to add to that, um, the the second order thinking process, which is like that's not look like the primary effect of of maybe uh, acquiring a really good customer, but like listen, the secondary effect. The like you mentioned, do they refer you to another customer? Is there a referral loop that's creating a growth coefficient above one? yes or no? And then how do we get more of those types of customers in that ICP as opposed to just broadly looking at everything? Um, but then on the flip side, just to play devil's advocate, there is um, the work by uh, Ehrenberg Bass Institute, which is all about the only way for brands to grow is through acquisition, um, you know, and and then churn is really a mathematical construct of uh, in proportion to the size of your brand. So IE, if you're a bigger brand, your relative churn to other competing brands will be less than a smaller brand. So then their argument is uh, through a lot of empirical data, may I add um, that it's, it pays to get as big as possible. And so I want to ask you this question after you've said that um, does it help to be a bigger brand and do you notice smaller churn rates with larger brands within a category than smaller brands?
1: Um I would say that that isn't is not true. Uh you are going to have different churn rates in different customer segments. Love and it. so again using this kind of, you know, The problem when you get into metrics that are so global like that is it covers over all of the little intricacies and you could have like a super high 29% churn rate in this customer segment. And then you could have, you know, a negative churn rate, uh, that would be revenue churn rate where, you know, uh, you've managed to upsell and cross sell so well to this particular customer segment, um, And But then when you average it out, it's like, oh, well, the the churn rate's just, you know, whatever, 2%, let's say. You really have to look at that. And again, this company, now I'm bound and determined to figure out what company it was. I bet you, and they're not massive. They are not in, in, you know, they're international probably in terms of where their customers are based, but they're not a billion-dollar company. And I can guarantee their retention rate is high. And I've seen that with other companies as well, because the decision was made and it's a culture thing. The decision was made a long time ago that we are only going to sell to good fitting customers or our ideal customer profile, because we would rather have a smaller customer base that remains loyal and, um, and then they buy more and we're happier, they're happier. Um, and that that's really it. So I would push back because if you look at at those different customer segments or even different uh, product lines that they sell, the churn rate's going to be different for each one.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's like um, uh, you know, we're getting okay. We're opening a, cap, a can of worms here, but like, I use different product offerings within the same company for different segments. So like, I might use a, like what I call a foot and door product, which is like a lower cost product. It's um, you know, maybe lower friction sales process uh for people just to like wet their appetite. Maybe maybe some people use an ebook, or I'm just using maybe a short course or something very simple if you've got a service offering. And then those customers are like, you know, they're not qualified for some of your higher um price. Offerings or never will be or don't have that sort of mindset, but you can still earn some money off those customers, and they get a to churn. And then there's other parts that will convert into a higher paying customer from that. So you kind of use that as a lead-in product to your main product, and then these ratios will be like pretty consistent. So and then you might have another segment that's like you know full enterprise. So like I love what you're saying there. Like look at your customer cohorts or segments and treat them differently and get into the bone marrow of the aggregate data because that's kind of where the juicy stuff is. Um, you like what you're saying. Is there any sort of books that you're reading on this topic or is it in generally that's improving um, your sort of thought process around this topic?
1: Um, I have books that I'm reading, but not on on this topic. Um, I think, you know, I think, you know what, I'm going to I have it right here, which is why I keep looking off camera. And it's a new book. Uh, She used to be with with Google. Her name is um, Sukinder Singh Cassidy. It's called Choose Possibility. You can see the little tabs I have in it. And it really comes down to the same thing is what type of call, you know, what type of decisions you want to read? You want to read? What type of decisions do you want to make for a big company, small company what kind of risks do you want to take? Do you want to risk moving from an acquisition, heavy focused uh, growth? Or do you want to take the risk and, and try, uh, you know, the retention side and, and growing that instead and, and balancing it out? So her whole book is is about taking those risks and, and really making that decision. What What works best for me? Um, these are not easy decisions to make. And like I said earlier, once you make the decision, what does that mean in execution? What's that gonna affect down the road in terms of employees, in terms of customers? What processes need to change? Everything from compensation plans. Like, it, I, I love this because it's messy but the problem with the messiness is that it's challenging because there is no one road that's straight and it's easy to follow you're gonna make mistakes you're gonna have to backtrack you're gonna have to undo some of the things you did and fix them but that's just the reality of it if the goal though is to increase customer retention and at the same time if you want also increase employee retention too and it means taking those risks. So I really like this book because she talks about her her story um, at Google, and then she was also at StubHub as well, and and uh, you know what happened there, um, and just about the risks and choosing the which risks you want to take, and and having that sort of goal or, or life that you want to live. So I would say that that that's. I think that fits sort of ev- for everything, just for life, for business, for it all.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, um I think, you know, maybe when you're less experienced, you you're looking for those sort of silver bullet solutions, and then you realize actually that yeah, these business situations and decision-making processes are complex and there's different ways to look at them, and you have to embrace that complexity. And that scares a couple of people who are simple thinkers, but I think understanding those nuances of what experienced business people is a hallmarks of very good business people that they embrace it all and go, actually, it's more about probability and possibilities of, of different states that from these decisions, and then, um, being able to react to that rather than trying to make the perfect decision. That's like going to hit the goal home. Um, so no, I love it. What about favorite websites, websites or people, um, resources that you'd recommend people, uh, grab on the internet?
1: Okay, I have a huge smile on my face because, of course, uh, I like to push. If everyone's zigging, I like to zag. Um, Zagging can be really hard because there's fewer people that do it and the path isn't always so clear. So I follow, it's called tinylittlebusinesses.com, Andre Chaperone and Sean Twing, uh, they're marketers. Their whole idea is uh, around world buildings and that you – Um, pull customers to you meaning that they are so attracted by your values and the and the value you provide to them that they come to you rather than sort of pushing uh, customers into a sale like Anybody, I'm, we've all had it happen where we've been, you know, hard, uh, hard sold into something, and then you know sooner buy it than, than you regret that you have it. So theirs is a very gentle approach, and that it's a much longer term play. Um, but in doing this, it it really creates those raving fans, those loyal customers who stay for years and years and years, and. Um, I just love what they do, um, but it's not its not a silver bullet. It is not straightforward. It does mean you have to challenge your assumptions and sometimes make some very difficult decisions about um, what that will look like when it comes to executing
0: them. Okay, and what about favorite piece of tech? Uh, you obviously work for a lot of tech firms, could be software or hardware here.
1: My favorite, I can't live without Airtable. I love Airtable.
0: <laughs> and what do you use it for then?
1: Oh, I so I use it I use it personally to track I have like my OKRs in there. I I actually have my to-do list. But then also with my team, I'm I do use Slack. I'm just not a huge fan of it, but with uh my marketing team, especially it allows us then to speak specifically to to records and have conversations there so that when we need to go back and see, okay, what were the decisions we made about this? You click on the record, excuse me, and it pops up the the entire chat that we've had. And you go, okay, that's right. That's the decision we made versus I found just, you know, a Slack and Asana just weren't quite cutting it for me in terms of keeping that information very handy. So that's what I use it for. And, and I love it. Use it with clients. I've used it Oh, with all sorts of folks, Um, just because, and it just works with how I think. Now, I I have a a colleague of mine. He's a PhD, brilliant guy. He hates it. (laughs) I'm trying for years now. I've been trying to get him on it. It it just doesn't work with how he thinks. But for me, uh, because it's very logical and process, like I can really have my processes in there. um, It just, yeah, I love it. I just simply love it.
0: And you mentioned the best meme. So the evergreen sort of ship stuck in the Suez Canal. I'll put the, that link in the comments because that sounds hilarious. I saw so many good memes, by the way, from from that picture. It was hilarious. Um, what about something you want to plug? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are we promoting today that you're involved with that you want to get the the voice out there for?
1: So I love this call to action. Um, every talk I, I give webinar uh, or a presentation, I want to push people to do one thing, whether you're a founder, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a CRO, you're a marketer, my challenge to you is to get on a call with a customer every day for the next seven days. Now, ideally asking the same set of questions, but if you can't do that, then just ask about their experience and let them sort of guide the conversation. That is the one thing um, I really want people to do. Now, if you're looking for something a little more formal, um, I have a, it's a webinar and a, it's an associated blog that goes with it that tells you step-by-step how to conduct customer exit interviews. Because the easy part is actually what we're doing. It's the talking. The hard part is figuring out then what to do with the data, how to analyze it, and how to report it. So it's all in there. Um, you know, you can watch the video, or you can go through and uh, read the steps in the blog. I don't gate any of my content, so as soon as you land on the page, you can download it, or you can um, uh, just click through and and um, you know pick up the information you need. So it's right there for you. But that's that's it. I want people to just start talking to their customers. It doesn't have to be perfect, but The point is to make it a practice, and the more you practice it, the more value you'll see, just like you have, um, the more value you'll see that talking to those customers is where you will get the answers to all those questions you have.
0: Great, so it's AnitaToth.ca, so A-N-I-T-A-T-O-T-H.ca. Yeah, I mean, I looked at website beforehand just to do some research anyway. I really like some of the slides you have there as well about different sort of topics that we're talking about today. And I got some really good ideas from some of those that I actually forwarded to somebody. So um, I love how you don't gate the content. By the way, I hate gated content. Um, And um, what if uh, someone's really resonated with them? Okay, so
1: I gotta say that's Andre Chaperone and Sean Twing stuff.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> oh great. Okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, I'm definitely gonna check out that website as well because it sounds really interesting. Um, it's like that sort of pull versus push method with marketing. It's like, you know, you either have your yep. product and your brand sell the product and and gravitate people towards you or you sort of just force it down their throats um so yeah there's two kind of ways to do that so i love it um now what if people really enjoyed what we're talking about today and love love your work and want to get in contact with you directly Uh, what's your favorite method
1: linkedin that's my i swear it's my my online home is linkedin feel free i think my little button has changed so there's there's I think it says follow. Uh, If you just click over I think there's three little buttons or it says more something like that. If you click on that it'll come down and it will say connect and just connect with me. Let me know that you you heard this episode and let's just get a conversation going. I'm not big, you know, following Andre Chaperone's work. I'm not big on pushing for sales. Let's talk if I can help you out great. But if I can't, then maybe I can point you in the direction of, of somebody who can help you. That's really my goal is to just make the experience um, as as good as possible for customers. And um, that means sometimes not having a sale and and that's okay. It really is because eventually the sales come um, on their well,
0: own. And maybe that churn otherwise <laughs> And on that note And then
1: there you go, right? So it's that whole balance thing yeah yeah.
0: You got it. And on that note, I'd really like to thank you for the conversation. I think it's been really interesting on my part as well. I really love like how deep you go into your work. It's obviously you're very good at what you do. So, um, thanks again for for taking the time out of your day to t- to have a chat about churn and everything else. Um, and I hope we can uh, keep the conversation going in the future.
1: Absolutely. And this was a lot of fun. I'm very passionate about what I do. Please, please, please. Those seven days, if you can do it, just pick up the phone, contact one customer, talk to them even for 15 minutes. You will be surprised what you will learn. So really, if there's one thing you get out of this whole episode, I just urge you to take that little action because it will make a big difference for you and it will make a difference for those customers as well.
0: Great. So that's like a seven day customer research boot camp almost, right? Love it. Okay, love your work, uh, Anita. Thanks again.
1: Yeah, thank you. Wow,
0: that was a great discussion. I love how passionate Anita is about everything she talks about. Now, that was another episode on our strategy series, in this case, about churn or retention strategy. And there's lots of tactical takeaways from here as well and I want to merge the two between strategy and tactics again this is episode 8 of season 2 so I've got lots more strategy episodes to go but also within that we have uh, more of our channels to go so make sure you stay tuned if you're interested in all the different 42 channels that we're going to cover in the preceding uh, weeks from this episode now thanks for your uh, listenership as always uh, follow me on LinkedIn John James the guy with the penguin suit in black and white otherwise a dose of John On uh, Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you want to retain alerts. And again, I'll put all of these uh, in the coming weeks on YouTube as well, if you prefer to listen on YouTube. Um, I normally cut together a teaser trailer um, so you can sort of get an idea of what the episode's gonna be like to see if it's kind of your kitten and caboodle or not before you commit uh, 50 minutes to an hour of your valuable time to listening. So I do appreciate the time you take out to listen to all of this. And again, I'm really open to feedback. I'm open to suggestions. If you have any improvements or people you think I should talk to, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn with a personalized invite And say hey john uh, listen to me um i've got some really good ideas and i'll always listen so that's all for now but uh thanks again for listening and i'll speak to you again soon